Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until february 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. Today's episode is Selected Tragedy Volume 6, Tragic History. And it's made up of three different performances done at different shows that we put on last year, which all look at tragic history basically it's as simple as that three kind of history lessons but also mixing in funniness and music and poetry and all the sorts of things that make history come alive so those performances are going to be back to back without me doing any narration in between starting us off we've got Jonathan Wakeham who you can follow on Twitter at Jonathan Wakeham and who runs the Loco London Comedy Film Festival, which you can find out more about at locofilmfestival.com. And this is a set that he did at a night that we devoted completely to tragic history. It was a really good night that stayed really on theme and is worth listening to in its entirety. Following Jonathan, we've got Jiffa Benson, who's doing some poetry. She performed with us at our Tragic Martyrs Night and you can find her at Jiffa Benson on Twitter to keep up to date with what she's got going on. I know she's doing various new pieces of poetry and she's been doing that over the last couple of years and I really like what she does so I would suggest checking her out. And then to close up the show we've got Helen Zoltzman with some improvised musical accompaniment provided by Jay Foreman. Helen does loads of things that are really good, including Answer Me This, the podcast. So check that out. You can find that on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, all of those kind of places. Same places you can find Stand Up Tragedy. And you can find out more about Helen and what she does, which is much more than just Answer Me This, at HelenZoltzman.com. She performed with us at Tragic Beginnings, which we ran in January, about a year ago. So it's kind of coming up for the year anniversary of that performance. From a content note point of view, the effect of history does sometimes mean that things that we hear about from the past may feel less sad or may feel less raw or may not be as upsetting to us but nevertheless of course there is plenty of sad things within this episode there's some reference to suicide there's death there's slavery and racism and stuff like that so as ever be prepared for that there's also laughs to be had beautiful words interesting things that you might not know about and now here's the show 
His name is Jonathan Wakeham, which is how you can find him on Twitter. So, Jonathan Wakeham, everybody! Uh, good evening, everybody. I would like to talk about Thomas Midgley, uh, a man called Thomas Midgley who was responsible for more disease, disaster and death than any man who ever lived. So it's going to be fun. Thomas Midgley was born in 1889, the same year as Charlie Chaplin and Adolf Hitler. He was the only baby born that year without a moustache. His father was an inventor. Uh, but a very bad inventor. They had no money. Thomas Midgley grew up poor. And at a very young age, he decided that he wanted to be rich. Uh, by the way, all of this is true. And with admirably lateral thinking, he got his first job at the age of 19 at the National Cash Register Company. And he then went to work at General Motors as a chemist. Now, General Motors had a problem. And that problem was called engine knock. And it was about the combustion in the engines was making a, a kind of explosion noise. It didn't damage the engine, but it put people off buying cars. So Thomas Midgley got to work, and he soon discovered that there was a very well-known substance that you could add to gasoline. And if you added the substance to gasoline, the engine would make no noise at all. Unfortunately, the very well-known substance was lead, and what it was very well known for was being poisonous. But it did make engines really, really quiet. And so in 1922, two things happened. The League of Nations banned the use of lead in household paint. And America was the only country that didn't sign up to that ban. And General Motors employed the DuPont Chemical Company to make enormous amounts of leaded petrol. And they called their new company the Ethyl Corporation because it didn't want people to know what was in it. If they had wanted people to know what was in it, they wouldn't have called it the Ethyl Corporation. They'd have called it chock full of lead. And within just a few years, more than 90% of the petrol in America was made with lead. Now, the United States Surgeon General wrote to General Motors, and he said, since lead poisoning is of the cumulative type, it seems pertinent to inquire whether there might not be a decided health hazard associated, associated with the extensive use of lead tetraethyl in engines. Thomas Midgley wrote back to the Surgeon General, and this is what he said. It has been given very serious consideration. No actual experimental data has been taken, but the average street will probably be so free from lead that it will be impossible to detect. Let's just go back a bit. No actual experimental data has been taken, but the average street will probably be so free from lead that it will be impossible to detect. In fact, he went so far as to give a press conference. There's a picture of this. Thomas Midgley gave a press conference where he washed his hands in ethyl fluid and inhaled the vapour, and the statement that he gave to the press was... I'm not taking any chances whatsoever. Now, the American Chemical Society was so delighted and impressed by Thomas Midgley's work that they awarded him a medal and they invited him to make a speech. Sadly, he had to decline his speech three times because he was suffering from lead poisoning, having washed his hands in ethyl fluid and inhaled the vapour. But Midgley wasn't the only one to suffer. At DuPont's Deepwater plant in New Jersey, over 300 workers got sick and many of them died. But instead of saying, my God, this is awful, we should do something, DuPont released a statement. Their statement blamed their workers. This is what DuPont said. Well, we have a great deal of trouble in inducing the men to be cautious. We have to protect them against themselves. And at another ethyl corporation plant, six workers died from violent insanity and 33 others suffered incurable brain damage. This time, DuPont told the press, 
these men probably went insane because they worked too hard. So how did this happen? How did DuPont and GM get away with it? How is it that leaded petrol wasn't banned until the 1980s? Well, this is where we meet the other hero of our story, and he was a man called Robert Kehoe. Robert Kehoe was a toxicologist. He worked for GM, and he was the founder of the Kehoe Doctrine. And the Kehoe Doctrine says, there is always uncertainty to be found in a world of imperfect information. And what that means in practice is that whenever an industry invents a dangerous product, the burden of proof falls on the state to prove that it's dangerous, not the inventor to prove that it's safe. It's the same defense we've seen from the tobacco industry, the asbestos industry, and the refrigeration industry, as we will see. Because Thomas Midgley wasn't finished. So it's now the 1920s. And in the 1920s, all across America, people were being killed by fridges. Now, this is not because fridges were falling on top of them. It's not because they were climbing into fridges. It's because the gases used to keep fridges cold were toxic. So people brought fridges into their homes. The fridges would then leak and the people would then die. And in 1929, 15 people in Chicago were killed by fridges made by the same refrigerator company. Brilliantly, this company was called the Peerless Refrigerator Company. So clearly a new gas was needed, one that was stable, safe and cheap to produce. So they called on Thomas Midgley. And Midgley came up with a new gas, and this gas he called Freon. And in 1930, he gave another demonstration to the press. He inhaled a lungful of Freon, and then he blew out a lit candle with it to show that it was non-toxic and non-flammable. And that same year, here in London, a young mathematician called Sidney Chapman was developing a theory. His theory was that the Earth was, was protected from dangerous ultraviolet radiation by a tiny percentage of the atmosphere. And that tiny percentage of the atmosphere was made up as a very rare allotrope of oxygen. And that allotrope was called ozone. If you take all of the ozone in all of the atmosphere and you squish it, what you end up with is a layer that's about as thick as the sole of your shoe. Thomas Bridges Freon Freon was enormously successful. The CFCs were fantastic. They put them into aerosols, into fridges, into thousands of other products, and they floated up into the atmosphere, and they attacked the ozone molecules, literally stealing the oxygen from them. And how did this happen? How was Freon ever declared to be safe? Well, it was declared safe by an expert, and that expert was Robert Kehoe. So between them, Thomas Midgley and Robert Kehoe were responsible for literally millions of deaths. 75 million American children alone suffered from toxic levels of lead poisoning. Which makes me wonder what's the moral of the story? Well, if you're a pessimist, I think it's about the power of business. It's about the way in which large corporations consistently conceal the dangers of the products that they make. If you're an optimist, it's about the resilience of nature. So since lead was banned in petrol, the blood lead level of Americans has declined by 75%. The Montreal Treaty that phased out CFCs has prevented millions of deaths from skin cancer and has helped to slow down climate change. And the ozone hole over Antarctica will be closed by 2050, 100 years after Thomas Midgley's death. What a celebration. But I think the moral of the story is this. We all make mistakes. We all fuck up from time to time. If we risk nothing, we achieve nothing. Midgley's crime is not that he failed, but that he tried so hard to hide it, just as Enron did and Lehman Brothers and the British and American governments in Iraq and Afghanistan. See, I think we should embrace our failures. We should be proud of our fuck-ups. We should share them. We should learn from them. And we should share what we learn. 
Samuel Beckett put it better than me. He said, ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. I think we should all do that. We should try again, fail again, and fail better. And if we do that together, we share what we learn. Maybe, just maybe, we can still save the world. Thank you very much. Sleep tight. Uh, you can find her on Twitter, at Jiffa Benson, because uh, that's her name, Jiffa Benson. So put your hands together for Jiffa Benson! The next poem, I think, probably does fit in with... Something fits in with a bit of a, the tragedy theme, anyway. And um, I wrote it because somebody who was very close to me took their own life and I found them and um, when I came across this thing called the yoctogram which is what I sort of contemplate in this poem yoctogram is the smallest designated measure of weight that you can have um, and basically a yoctogram is um, a billionth of a billionth of a millionth of a gram. So it's really something that um, it's very hard to imagine. And I tried to, you know, I tried to get my head around it, and this poem came out, as well as trying to get the, my head around the other thing that happened. Okay, it's called The Yoctogram Gram Weighs In. I can hear the sweat in his laugh dissolve like a small alka as it crumbles down its own gravitational well. And I wonder how many to make Atlas's knees buckle, how many more to fit on the head of a pin. That 6,000-ton sequoia that toppled in the forest, how many yoctos did its minuscule seed heave? An ant's load at three times its own weight would crack these nanotubes. This mote of dust in my eye is boulder size as I ponder the yoctogram tipping point of the inevitable avalanche. What is true of apples and earth's core is also the tiniest margin of error that hefts a single straw. The quantum physician tells me when a man is burnt completely, the chemicals left amount to just two pounds. All things we think of as weightless would take countless yoctos to gain the heave and traction of bulk, a sun swallowed by its own shadow, silver flecking through a feather, my tears sieved of all their salt. Um. Thanks. Okay. The next couple of poems are a bit more cheerful. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, there was a lot of laughter before, so, you know, it, it had to be a counterpoint to all that. One could say I'm a martyr to fashion. Well, no, I'm not really a martyr. I got asked in the break and, you know, recorded saying, what would you die for? Nothing, really. Nothing. <laughs> but I have killed my feet with high heels and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I like wearing corsets. Um, I haven't worn one for a while, but, um, yeah, to wear a corset, you really have to be a martyr to 
not breathing. But after a while, you do you do learn to sort of you kind of learn to breathe with it. It's weird. You have to try it yourself, and then you don't notice you've got it on because you've got used to it. And then when you go to bed, when you take it off, it's still like you've got it on. So it's, it's quite weird. And um, and the thing about wearing a corset is you never feel unsupported. It's a bit like a good friend. It will support you. It's got your back. That's what it's got. Anyway, I, I got to... I, I liked wearing corsets so much and wondered why. And I thought, what would a corset say if it could speak? And this is what I came up, came up with. It's called truss. My eyelids are open wide as I lie here in the gloom, holding my breath as her skin rubs the satin of my spine and the wind of Crete billows in my stays. I want to sheath her torso in the clenched cuddle of a snake, lick sprung steel onto spongy belly, measure her breath in shallow snatches. She bends to my will, I feed on her musk and sweat, trussing her wiles to mold her heat, clutch flesh from sag and spill. I dream in sine waves of wasp waist bound and boned, busk men to bust on ladies who tight lace, ladies who bind rib in bone, who relish the sting of my tears scored in welts down their backs. They know that it's a cinch, taming nature into art, inch by inch by inch. That's what they would say. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to do one more. And this is, this is I, think, I think she can be described as a martyr. She was a real-life woman. Um, her name was Saki Bartman. Anybody heard of her, Saki Bartman? No? Okay. Um, very famous case. Um, they, she was known as the Hottentop Venus. And um, basically, she was a South African woman from... Cape Town, and she belonged to what used to be called the Hottentots, but they're now called the Koi Koi. And they are distinguished, they're, they're basically, um, um, what do you call them, those people who don't have homes, they roam, what do you call them? Nomads, yeah, <laughs> um, in Southern Africa. And um, so it kind of makes sense that the women have these stores of fat in their bottoms. And they are really, really big bottoms. I mean, you know, you can put barrel on their bottoms. And anyway, um, Saki, um, in particular, got brought over, got tricked by an English ship's doctor and got brought over to Europe. This was about the 17th century. And she was displayed in circuses in Paris and London, a bit like the elephant man would have been, and um, said to be an example of why black people were inferior, because, you know, um, she, she looked animalistic. Um, but it, in a campaign led by Nelson Mandela um, back in the early 2000s, her remains were brought back to South Africa and she was given a proper burial. She's actually quite a famous case. If you just put in Hottentop Venus 
in Google, reams and reams of stuff comes up, lots of links, and you see the pictures. So, um, yeah, and I like bums. I like, yeah, um, I, like, I, I like looking at them. I, anyway, uh, <laughs> it's not martyry. Anyway, <laughs> she, she was a bit of a martyr in that respect, and, and she had a big bum. And um, although I'm not Nigerian, I did live in Nigeria for a while, and in Nigeria, um, they rather like their women much more rounded, shall we say, a lot more meat on them. And especially if you have a really proper bottom, they say you have bottom power. So I call this bottom power. So anyway, a backside floats inside the dark side of a history pickled in formaldehyde. This wasn't a Damien Hurst or the slaking of knowledge thirst of one-eyed men leading blind fools and grasping for straws in the genetic pool. This was a museum in Gay Paris and here was young Saki, the ultimate other whose derriere was the denier Cree eclipsing all dimensions of what a pair of buttocks dared be. She was caught up in the scramble for African booty and shipped across the straits of incredulity. Branded freak, sideshow curiosity, baby's back had way too much front refracted in the sweaty gaze of Eurocentricity. It was exuberant and protuberant. It undulated around the sinuous figure of eight. Her hips rolled like green across the hills of the veld. It was an arsenal of flesh and fodder for fetish. They all came to relish the drama playing out on the curvature of her spine. And Kelly Fanny, they muttered, a kyber purse as bold as, bra- as bold as brass, they guessed. Steetopegus, gluteus maximus, heaven help us, it takes no prisoners, they hollered. Lordy, Lord, Lord, her highly surely must have taken out a deposit with the Almighty, they hollered. What an untidy pudendous ear what? Let's call it Venus. The show was over. There was no love lost here, save for that of one-eyed men, rutting for notions of an inferior posterior in the funnel between her thighs. Saki loses self in the arse end of a bottle, dying to resurrect her, her eyes. But then again, I see you, baby, shaking that ass, shaking that ass, shaking that ass fast, whipping up a frenzy of peach-shaped fecundity, tail feather perched optimistically high on your hips, switching, locking down the rhythm of some mix-a-lot fancy and rump-shaking, tush-wagging, butt-jiggling, bumper-pulling, caboose-stacking, money-making, bad-ass-kicking, hips-ways and dips. And then you ask, did God break the mold, shaping Beyonce's round mound, forming Kylie's bite-sized hindquarters, delivering the broadside that is J-Lo's backside? 
God-given is reason and ample hemispherical features. They distinguish us from all other living creatures. They are ridiculous and sublime. They have been vilified and eroticized in turn. They are the mount of all desire, but it's hardly the seat of all wisdom. If bum cracks are the new cleavage and mother nature made you average, get your fucking ass down to Brazil for some nip and tuck leverage. Saki's ass was everything like the sun. It was big, it was bold, it was a celestial body rising to contour South Africa's coast. It was a ledge to stand on and gaze into the face of heaven's host. Thank you very much. Thank you. So our last performer for the second act tonight, uh, you, well, you may have heard her uh, podcast, Answer Me This. She also has a podcast called Sound Woman, and you can uh, find her at www.helenzoltzman.com. So put your hands together, everybody, for Helen Zoltzman. And I believe somebody else is going to come up to the stage and help her out with some music. I press gang Jay Foreman into providing some tragic backing music. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, a historical event that is, it is a series of tragic beginnings and not really any middles or ends. Um, it took place in 1846. It was not one of uh, Britain's greatest foreign policy uh, achievements. And weirdly, the philosopher David Hume was there for the whole thing. Uh, so this is David Hume's eyewitness account, and all the facts are true. I have updated the vernacular for a modern audience. Um, so uh, take it away, oh, yeah. Jake. Yeah. Dear Diary. Is it okay to call you Diary? I don't really feel like we're on first name terms. Um, I wish someone had warned me that philosophy was not a growth industry. I've been really struggling to get a toehold, and have had to take a job in the military uh, to make ends meet. I'm now the secretary to General James St. Clair and will be accompanying him on a very important mission to give the French a bloody good scare by invading Canada. I've assembled everything we could possibly need to invade Canada. We've got maps of Canada, we've got experts in Canadian dialect, and we've even got Mexican dollars to buy things in Canada with. We sail tomorrow. I'm so excited, I can't sleep. Watch out, Canada. Dear diary, are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? Dear diary, we have landed in Jersey. Only 3,000 miles out. Better luck tomorrow. Dear diary, still in Jersey. 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 I pray to local god Bergerac that we set sail soon. Dear diary, still in Jersey. Dear diary, still in Jersey. Dear diary, still in Jersey. Dear diary, back in England. We've learnt a lot, e.g. not to aim for Jersey when you're trying to get to Canada. We won't make that mistake again. Tomorrow we set sail again for Canada. 
dear diary, we have landed on the Isle of Wight. <laughs> Only 3,000 miles out. Again. Dear diary, still on the Isle of Wight. 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 Note to self, do not visit the Isle of Wight before the invention of crazy golf. Diary. Still on the Isle of Wight, General St. Clair has been building a massive sandcastle for eight days just so that he can invade something successfully. Dear Diary, back in England. But watch out, Canada, we'll get you yet. Third time's a charm. Dear Diary, our expedition is facing an even greater enemy than the French even greater than Canada, even greater than the Isle of Wight. Adverse wind conditions. Canada, we apologise for the delay in invading you. Please bear with us while we await some, some better invading conditions. Dear diary, it's still too windy to invade Canada. My plant pot fell off the windowsill yesterday. And now they're saying that it's too late in the year to invade Canada anyway, because once we got there, we'd freeze to death. It's not ideal conditions for invading. Uh, so you know what, diary? Screw Canada! We've got an alternate plan, an even more brilliant scheme for sticking it to those Frenchies. We are going to invade... France! Yeah. We set sail tomorrow. Good thing I hung on to all the maps of Canada and Mexican dollars, because we're sure to need those when we invade France, or when we're in France, or en France, as uh, I should get used to saying. Uh, we've got all the guys back together again as well. Half of them have died of scurvy, but they'll get over it. British upper lip and all that. Dear diary, we have landed in France! Zero miles out! Nailed it! Now all we have to do is invade a bit of it, then piss off home. It's, it's not been easy so far. Did you know, it's rather difficult to navigate around France when you're just using a map of Canada. We were aiming for Vancouver Aquarium, but we seem to have ended up in Brittany, outside a small town called Lorient. So we've decided to invade Lorient. It shouldn't be too difficult. And then we can carry on looking for the aquarium. I've heard they've got beluga whales there. Dear Diary, hit a few snags on our way to giving Lorient a bloody good ass-kicking. Firstly, all of the road signs are in French, so we don't know where we're going. Secondly, they've brought in reinforcements. We've got about 8,000 troops, if you include the people who've died of scurvy. Uh, but my calculations suggest they may have 192,000 more than that. Thirdly, it's too muddy. Uh, would Henry V have squelched his way onto the breach, dear friends? No! And therefore, we have decided to retreat and not invade Lorient. The invasion's off again. Dear diary, even not invading a place is extremely dangerous. As we retreated from Lorient, we came face to face with thousands of soldiers, but we opened up all of our guns and all of our cannons on them and killed them all. Huzzah! Show them what's what, what, what. Dear diary, turns out that all those guys we killed last night were on our own team. 
I'd call it a draw. And uh, the last thing that is in David Hume's diary is um, a postcard uh, from the mayor of Lorient. He says, hi, Dave. Uh, this'll make you lol. I shut myself when I heard of all of your guns and cannon going off. Uh, so we came out to surrender to you. But you'd already fucked off. <laughs> Winky emoticon. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. Hashtag psych. That was the end of that military expedition. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay Foreman, as well. We have a date for our first London show of 2015. We're doing Tragic Winter at the Hackney Attic on Saturday, the 28th of February. We've got an amazing lineup featuring Izzy Lawrence, Amy McAllister, and Jack Rourke. And we've also got a guest curation section for our shows this year. So we're going to have Act Two curated by Alice Bell, who is a writer and public speaker, journalist, science observer, editor, all sorts of things that she is. She's really great and she's going to be curating the whole of Act Two. So come along for to see what she has in store for you. She's looking at tragic climate change and we're going to have the first act be dedicated to tragic fairy tales and the last act dedicated to tragic death. So a night of tragic themes centred around the winter coming to you in February. So set your dates for the 28th. It's on a Saturday It'll go on till late if we want it to go on till late, but the act will finish around 10.30, and after that, we can have some tragic dancing until we decide that the tragedy is over. It's time to go. This podcast has been produced by me, put together by me, with sound production from Stephen Harvey, with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson, and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton. <laughs>